0: Hi, and welcome to another net zero investor discussion. My name is Joachim Nyberg, and today we are discussing all things green, climate and sustainability linked bonds with Krista Tokiainen, head of market intelligence at the Climate Bonds Initiative, as well as Ulf Adlanson, the founder of the Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute. First off, some introductions. So Krista, could you give me an elevator pitch version of what it is you do?
1: So the Climate Bonds Initiative is what we call an investor-facing not-for-profit organization, essentially working with the financial services sector and some corporates and countries in the kind of real-world economy to try to put some standards and sort of minimum baseline requirements at least around the sustainable fixed income space with a focus on bonds. We do this via a number of different work streams. The three kind of Top three most important ones being the standard setting activities, policy and advocacy work together with regulators at different parts of the economy, and then finally the market intelligence bit, which I lead. So that's essentially looking at, on a daily and weekly basis, what is being issued under these different labels, which I'm sure we'll get into in a moment, and how credible they are from predominantly a climate perspective.
0: Great. Over to
2: you, Ulf. Yeah, hi, and thanks for the invitation. Um, so Ulf Arlansson, I have a background as a sell-side quant analyst as well as, uh, as a portfolio manager at one of the Swedish state pension funds in, in credit and SSAs. I am heading something called the Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute, AFII, which is a fairly new organization, non-profit, looking to have a positive climate impact in fixed income markets. Really how we do that is writing sort of sell-side type of research analysis looking at you know, practical ways that people or asset owners can change their portfolios in order to get a better climate alignment. It's a very technical market and we think there's a clear need for sort of real practical advice on how to do that. So that's the mainstay of our focus.
0: What exactly do we mean when we say green climate bonds and what are some of the distinctions that are important to keep in mind in what's perhaps a confusing space when it comes to terminology?
2: Yeah, I think first, uh, we use the distinction labeled bonds, right? So everything that's not plain vanilla bonds, but has some sort of other characteristic attached to them. And among those, well, green bonds is the biggest uh, asset class, or it's not an asset class, but that biggest type. And then you have you know sustainability-linked bonds and uh, various other sort of social bonds and transition bonds. But I think you know green bonds has been the leading thing in terms of the types of bonds that are focusing on a certain pool of assets, whereas the sustainability-linked bonds, which is more of a new invention, are focusing on on the whole balance sheet of whoever is issuing there. And I think Christa can probably complement that picture.
1: Very good primer. I'll just say to the potentially not so well versed listener or viewer of this discussion that there are those labelled bonds. The money from those raised with those can be earmarked or ring fenced for different kinds of activities. So on the green bond side, we usually mean something environmentally beneficial. And the climate bond side obviously would be predominantly focused on emission mitigation or indeed adaptation and resilience activities, which are much, much, much sort of less represented in this market. But then we also have other types of labeled bonds, so social bonds and sustainability bonds that focus on these specific outlined use of proceeds, mostly issued by sovereign, subsovereign and sort of agency issuers. So we see a lot of development banks in that space, which is normal given they're already focused on sustainable development activities. But also increasingly in recent years, corporates, especially in North America, and we think this is because it's easier for them to sort of identify, you know, a large enough pipeline or pool of investable assets, projects, activities, if you can broaden the definitions out from something that's very specifically environmentally focused to, for example, looking at income equality or sort of access to basic services or looking at improving conditions for workers in your supply chain and so on and so forth. So that's to say it's a really broad market and Ulf is right in pointing out that it's now even broader because we have this new linkage mechanism which allows basically any kind of issuer to come to market without many restrictions. So lots of potential, but also lots of sort of issues to figure out there, let's say.
0: If we could um, stay perhaps on the issue of why we're seeing such an expansion in this market and you know increased interest amongst institutional investors, what do you think is driving this? and what specific sort of subsets do you think are going to be, you know, seeing growth over the next few years or whatever you think is a reasonable horizon to make predictions about here?
2: If you start looking at some of the traditional asset owner sites, I mean, both investors are identifying, you know, climate change as a big challenge and potentially just out of financial reasons, even saying that this is inherently giving a lot of risk to their portfolios over the long term. But I do also think there's a, you know, more of a moral argument for, you know, leaving a better world for your children, or at least as not as bad as it is uh, the trajectory is right now. So you have that side. Then you also have the sort of requirements even from end clients or whether it is from policymakers. You know, if you're working at an AP fund, the government, which actually essentially owns the AP funds, is going to have certain views on how sustainable the AP funds should be. And that sort of translates then into the investment mandates. And that's why you get this sort of drive to invest in these instruments. And you know, Green Bonds is a great product to do something with your fixed income on that front.
0: You mentioned briefly Sovereign being a, a new burgeoning asset class and a lot of people doing a sort of link type bonds to certain goals they have. Could you give some more flavor of what's going on there and what levels of interest we're seeing in those and who's buying them?
2: So it is a very nascent market. And we're, as, as Krista said, we're trying to figure out the modalities <laughs> of that market. It hasn't been great so far, to be honest, there has been a lot of sort of wishy-washy type of conditionalities built into these structures. But essentially how it works is that you have a traditional bond, and then the bond might step up halfway into the life of the bond on the basis of some sustainability criteria. It might be carbon intensity or absolute carbon emissions or something like that. So essentially, there's a cost associated for the issue with not living up to some commitments, which is a good thing uh, superficially to look at. And it also allows some companies that aren't able to access the green bond market to be able to get in, in in a sort of more of a label sense. But lots of pitfalls in that marketplace as it is right now.
1: If I can pick up on that sovereign point there as well. I mean, we've only seen, I think so far, one sustainability-linked bond from a country which came from Chile earlier this year in 2022 Q1. We've heard sort of through the grapevine that there are other emerging market economies that are considering the same and being advised by some of the main sort of street banks in the city and in New York to do that. So Ghana and Uruguay, at least. That's interesting because the vast majority of the labeled bond volume from sovereigns actually is from developed economies. And we've seen now more than 50 countries and sort of special administrative regions and jurisdictions have got you know, Hong Kong and the Isle of Man and those types of places as well in the mix. They've all been issuing either green social or sustainability bonds without the linkage. So if this goes a sort of emerging markets route, that says something about you know, the requirements. And maybe there is a sense of it being a more flexible and welcoming mechanism, perhaps, which Ulf was alluding to as well. But I would just caution against it being sort of a panacea. We still have to make sure that those targets are calibrated appropriately. And the mechanism of whether it's a penalty or reward is actually financially material to change behavior, because otherwise, we'll end up inadvertently rewarding issuers for doing nothing at all that is additional in terms of climate or other sustainability considerations. I would think that there's still a role for the use of proceeds bond labeled bond market to sort of keep growing and expanding. We need essentially every country to start issuing sovereign bonds. There's all sorts of Demonstration issuance benefits in terms of catalyzing local markets, especially in smaller, more emerging economies, but also in developed markets, like basically places like Germany and the UK want to build a green curve that you can then very easily compare to the conventional debt curve of that country, depending on obviously maturities and everything else to see, you know, where the pricing benefits might be as well, which becomes very interesting for even the mainstream fixed income investor. Sovereigns, in summary, have a massive role to play.
2: And I just want to say on the SLB or sustainability linked bonds phase, because it is a very exciting development in terms that it it can work. And we're working with a couple of cases now looking more at South Asia, where you're looking at this as a mechanism to finance like coal retirement mechanisms. For example, you have a coal issuer or a coal company today that is barely able to access capital markets at all or only at prohibitive costs. That means that they cannot make the transition into the renewables because they just don't have the capital. So they are sort of painted into a corner having to run the coal all the way out. Now, if we can provide the sustainability linked on the type of financing structure where they can get access to lower cost of capital today, unless they do what they have actually committed to, then they get a very penalizing rate in, in the future on that financing. But if they do, they should have access to much lower cost of capital than for what they would be faced as a pure coal company. And if we can help, you know, a couple of coal plants shut down that way, I mean, that's like hugely impactful in terms of, you know, looking at the opportunities in this market segment.
1: Just to echo that, I think this is the reason that the SLB, as it's sort of colloquially known, very acronym soupy, this whole space, but the SLB market is interesting and exciting because it starts to cross over from just looking at a very narrow set of use of proceeds to actually looking at what strategies, whether it's a company, we've also been in discussions with some of the kind of. Southeast Asian nations and their, you know, very state-owned power sectors needing to transition, if you can demonstrate that you're doing the right thing, yes, you should absolutely have access to reasonably priced capital, let's say, but also vice versa. When this becomes an access to capital issue based on what's actually being planned to sort of do in the real world in terms of demonstrable emission reductions and transitioning an entire sector, this is when it's impactful, right? An individual green bond is not going to do much if taken sort of out of context entirely in terms of what the rest of the issue or indeed a sector is doing.
2: And you can use black and gold type of models to price it, which some of us find really, really exciting as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds like a really interesting space. But I think one of the words that you've both mentioned quite frequently in your answers has been pitfalls. And one of the uh, big pitfalls that we certainly have been seeing ripple through the markets in the last few weeks has been the issue of greenwashing, bad metrics, bad reporting. How would you say that this applies to the broad space that we're talking about at the moment? And what are some of the things that one should be really looking out for as an investor or as a market participant otherwise?
2: Generally, I have the perspective that, sure, we can look at greenwashing and so on. But these are markets, right? I mean, it, you aren't supposed to be a big coastal club where everyone is hugging each other. And you have to realize that about the green bond or you know, the labelled bond market as well. It is sort of a tug of war between issuers and investors because, you know, one's gain is another one's loss. And there will be people trying to, you know, play not by the rules, trying to shoot down the sustainability market because of some mishaps. It's like saying that, you know, we shouldn't have capitalists because of wirecard. Just isn't one should be too critical about that. However, when it happens, we should you know be really serious about those transgressions. I do think there are two main issues to look for when you're doing this type of analysis. The first is, you know, if you're looking at the type of green bond market where, their their ring-fest assets and so on. You obviously have to check that the money is being used the way that it's supposed to be and that use of proceeds that actually is good. It's usually ish, actually, so that's usually robust. The other issue that we tend to, well, sometimes we have diverging opinions on that, Chris and I maybe, but it's more on this sort of fungibility of money on balance sheet. So what is the issue doing they might be doing something good and green here, but if they at the same time is building the East Africa oil pipeline, maybe you can't define them as a very sort of green issuer anyhow. And looking at that broader perspective, I tend to like to test when I was uh, buying bonds at AP4, would always be when the issuers came and they you know, gave the whole spiel about sustainability and so on. It's just like to ask them, what's the worst thing you have on balance sheet? Tell me about it. I want to know everything about it. And some people are aware and try to do that better. And some people are just, they don't want to have that discussion. And in the latter case, that's a big red flag for me. So as a practical advice, is just ask for the skeletons in the cupboard and see if they actually take them out.
1: By way of context, Climate Bonds Initiative collects this sort of security-specific data on the sustainable fixed income markets focused on labeled bonds. And I'm sure there are bonds in there that, you know, we're happy with the use of proceeds because as Ulf said, mostly this is. You know, really well structured, issuers know what they're doing, they have a clear framework, they get somebody externally to review it and give them a sort of seal of approval. And then, you know, our analysts will look at it as well after the fact, once it's already priced and so on. The big pitfall in that model has been that it doesn't look at the issuer profile, right? But we needed to do that to start with to make sure that that mechanism of understanding how to structure a credible labeled bond is sort of socialized. You know, we then managed collectively to build different kinds of ways to classify that credibility via different taxonomies. And you know, there's a proposed voluntary green bond standard in Europe and all these kind of things that wouldn't, I think, personally have come about without that kind of mindset. But now it is crucial to start digging out the skeletons in the closet. And this is what most of the sort of climate bond mandates that we've seen and that we talk to investors about are built on. So you'll have your you know, labeled bond universe and some data streams to sort of collect that. But then you'll also do an issuer level screen based off of different kinds of metrics, whether it's ESG ratings in combination with some specific sectors or whatever, and to weed out the stuff that isn't good and isn't moving in the right direction. So this is why I would also call for, okay, what's the worst thing that you have right now? And what are you going to do about it? And not in the next 32 years to say, oh, yeah, 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 I have 28 years rather. I have a net zero by 2050 target okay, that's great. But what are you doing in the next year to five, you know, 10? Because those are the planning horizons that most companies and indeed also countries can rely on. Otherwise, we're just stipulating off of something that's very blurry.
0: Well, I think we've got a couple more questions for you. This is going to be a bit of a quickfire round, starting with you Wolf on three things to look out for in the coming two to five year horizon, as we've specified that as a workable time frame. What are we expecting to see in this space? And what should you be keeping an eye on?
2: I think you know taxonomies, whether you like them or not, is going to be very important in terms of how a lot of sustainable finance is being structured. It's prone to be accidents happening there, but you know, it can be helpful in some ways as well. Another thing which I'm, we are looking and writing a lot about right now is integrity of corporate structures or how you look at your portfolios and how you sort of delineate you know, whether a big oil company, when they are issuing debt out of some subsidiary, where they have, you know, just a majority but not the full ownership, and investors then go buy those special purpose vehicle bonds, and it turns out that they don't get like the ESG score from the head company and stuff like that. There will be lots of things like that going on, so you know you need to track the money the whole time, and it's especially in this public to private context, which still will affect credit markets. Then, you know, last thing, I really hope that investors can sort of get out of their comfort zone and the active participants in these sort of robust, really ambitious SLB structures. So, you know, be able to step up and say, okay, we're going to put money with this emerging market co-issure for them to actually do a proper transition story. We're going to have all the securities and so on in there, but we are going to step out our traditional sort of exclusionary mandates and so on and really start, you know, playing a role in that and engaging that. That's a wish more than, you know, whether we are going to see it or not, but let's hope for it
0: a normative conclusion there. Krista, any reactions to that and then any top three sort of things?
1: Yeah, I mean, all of this, I think, is absolutely right. And it's very much we're seeing kind of the foundations being laid right now. I would also echo the point on taxonomies. Indeed, whether we like it or not, they're there. There's about 40 countries or jurisdictions globally that are already either have taxonomies in place or are in the process of building one for their particular jurisdiction, now the big challenge, and I think what we're going to be grappling with a lot is how do you make those interoperable? How do we actually figure out how to use them? Because as much as I love the EU taxonomy, you know, this is an 800-page technical document that was not built with the end user in mind when it comes to an investor or indeed a data provider or you know, similar intermediary. So we have a lot of homework to do on catching up with that because that will then link into you know regulatory drivers. That is the foundation for the European Union Sustainable Finance Action Plan. And a lot of the directives for investors and issuers to disclose draw heavily off of that and being able to assess alignment. I think we're going to see a lot more of that in other parts of the world as well, even potentially North America and specifically the US where you know the SEC and even the Fed have finally kind of woken up the reality that climate risk is indeed financial risk and potentially systemic financial risk. So That's a good signal that they're serious about regulating it. And in terms of market segment growth, SLBs, we've already talked about a lot, but I would say we're seeing a lot more of the sovereign volume still come to market. There's even in these crazy inflationary conditions, we've seen new entrants, Canada, Denmark and others already in the first half of this year. That's the way to start moving the really big bucks, as it were, in the system, because it's more than two thirds of overall global fixed income is sovereign bonds everybody has them, everybody needs to invest in them. So figuring out how to do that in a way that facilitates, you know, open and honest conversation and some engagement to sort of push them in the right direction is going to be, I think, quite prevalent. Maybe not the ultimate top three, but certainly lots going on in this market.
0: I realize I definitely set you a difficult challenge when I asked for only three things in this space. But Ulf, Krista, thank you very much for joining us here today. And do keep your eyes peeled for future net zero investor discussions Yeah, I wish you all a lovely afternoon.
2: Thank you, Joachim.
1: Thank you very much.